Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, Claudio Murgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire show. And uh, my guest um, today is um, Carl uh, McCollman. He's a contemplative writer, speaker, teacher, soul friend, and storyteller. He's the author of numerous books, including the big book of uh, Christian mysticism, Answering the Contemplative Call, An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom and Unteachable Lessons. His latest book, Eternal Heart, was published in June 2021. Carl studied at James Madison University and George Mason University, uh, professional writing and editing. His formation in the spiritual life includes training with the Shalem Institute in Washington, D.C., the Institute for Pastoral Studies in Atlanta, and the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Coniers, Georgia, where Carl is a life-professed lay Cistercian, a lay person under formal spiritual guidance with the Trappist monks. Carl is a certified presenter of uh, Centering Prayer introductory workshops. He co-hosts the Encountering Silence podcast with uh, filmmaker Cassidy Hall and theologian Kevin Johnson. More information about him and uh, his work at uh, anamchara.com. Carl, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I, it's, it's an honor because you are uh, well known in, in uh, this field. You, you wrote uh, amazing books. Um, so I'd like to, to start by um, answer, uh, asking you, and this posted on your website, that you started the, your career as a humble bookseller. So what determined you to enter into full-time uh, lay ministry? Well, it kind of happened by accident, I suppose. I, um, for many years, I made my living working in, uh, in the retail sector. I ran bookstores. I managed several bookstores. Then I worked for a company that distributed books, distributed CDs, music, that kind of thing. My last, I guess, day job, I actually ran the bookstore or helped to run, I should say, because it was the monk's bookstore, uh, their bookstore at the monastery. I did that for eight years. And it was while I was working for the monks that I began, um, well, that I wrote my book on Christian mysticism. And when it was published, then the monks uh, invited me to lead a retreat for them. And from there, uh, the ministry just spread. I started leading retreats at other monasteries and for churches and for seminaries. And before I knew it, it had become a full-time job. So I actually left the um, working for the monks in 20, uh, 2013. It'll be eight years next month, actually. And so I still have a warm relationship with the monastery. They are still my spiritual teachers, but no longer my employers. And so I've been doing it now full time, and it has been just a tremendous privilege. I, before the pandemic, I traveled, you know, all across the United States and then even occasionally to Europe to, um, to speak and to lead retreats on contemplative spirituality. Of course, with the pandemic, my work uh, became focused online. But now I'm beginning to get some invitations to speak again. So I'm, I'm very blessed, I should say. That's the right word. I'm very blessed to be able to do what I do. So I assume that uh, this work right now is much more fulfilling for, for you. Yes, the work is very fulfilling. It's, um, you know, the, the idea of ministry is an interesting idea. I think a lot of people, when they hear that word, they think of, of priests or of ordained ministers, pastors, preachers. But I believe, you know, the word ministry means service. And I believe any work that is involved in serving other people is a type of ministry. And so um, for 
whatever reason, I have been given uh, a love for the spiritual life. Obviously, it's very important to me personally. And then uh, the ability to share that love with others. And so, yes, fulfilling is very much the word that um, if I can help other people, I just in whatever small way to help them on their journey to grow closer to God, I'm just very happy to do so. Yes, we all need that uh, kind of help on our spiritual journey. That's that's for sure. Um, so there is still a lot of confusion between you know religion and, and spirituality. How would you describe it? Describe the difference. Well, I would say it's like the difference between um, between flesh and bone, if you will. That um, I I don't you know I don't see religion as the enemy. Uh, I know that that religion sometimes can can harm people, that people have been hurt by institutional religion. I understand that. But um, but I think in its best form, all religion represents is the way that we can organize ourselves communally around a shared goal of growing spiritually. So spirituality is the heart, the flesh, the blood. And religion at its best is the skeleton, the structure. Mm-hmm. And I think what, you know, why many people, you know, many people, especially in our day, will say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I think what that often represents is a rejection of religion when religion has become toxic or become harmful. And, and I think we, everybody is aware of ways in which religion can be toxic and harmful. So I don't need to go into a lot of detail there. And of course, I think it's wise, it's healthy to reject toxic forms of religiosity. But I guess my thinking is that we should be careful not to reject the best ideals of religion, the ideals of creating community, of forming relationships, forming social interaction, where we can help each other on that common quest to grow spiritually. And so maybe we are living in a time when new models of what religion represents are, are coming to fruition. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction that I'm involved in the Centering Prayer Movement. And of course, the Centering Prayer Movement, Centering Prayer is a very individual uh, spiritual practice, you know, where a person goes within and listens to the silence in their own heart. But there are also many ways in which Centering Prayer people can support one another, forming Centering Prayer groups, going on retreats together. Of course, there are conferences for Centering Prayer practitioners. And we need that organizational structure to support our individual practice. So I would argue that uh, an organization like Contemplative Outreach represents kind of like a new manifestation of religion. Obviously, it's not a church with a pope or bishops or anything like that, but it is a community. It is a structure. And I think we need that kind of thing to grow spiritually. So um, I hope that's a helpful analogy. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, analogy, as you said. And, um, you know, going inside and be contemplative, I think it's common to any, uh, to spirituality and any religion, or at least should be part of uh, a religion, because only then um, in silence we can connect with the divinity and understand more about who we really are. Exactly. And, you know, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, any good religion or, or healthy religion will have that contemplative 
aspect or that mystical aspect. And I think that's another thing that we're recognizing in, in our time. Really, it's only been what within the last 100, 125 years, you know, since the invention of the airplane, the invention of of mass communication, eventually, of course, the internet, broadcast television, that that the human, you know, the globe, the earth has become small. We now talk about the global village. And so, you know, our, our great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, they never had access to other religions or other cultures than whatever culture they happened to be, you know, part of. And so, you know, I grew up in the United States, in North America, and even in my childhood back in the 1960s and 1970s, it was very unusual to meet somebody who wasn't either Jewish or Christian. It's like those were the only religions that, that most people were aware of. And I think I was in high school the first time I met somebody who, who was Hindu. Uh, of course, he and his family were from India. And then it wasn't until college or, or graduate school that I met Muslims or Buddhists or you know, people of other faith traditions. But now, you know, just 30 or 40 years later, I live in Atlanta. Atlanta isn't, you know, it's a big city, but it's not even the biggest city in America. You know, people think of New York or San Francisco, Washington, Chicago. You know, and yet even in Atlanta, we have a huge Muslim community, a huge Hindu community. We have, we have, I think, over 30 different Buddhist sanghas in the community. Of course, thriving Jewish Christianity of all stripes. So we are all being exposed. And then, of course, on the internet, we are all being exposed to all these different spiritual traditions. And I think that's one of the reasons why people get frustrated with religion, because religion sometimes, you know, it, it can be just focused on its own, you know, to use a, a commercial language, its own brand. You know, if you go to a mm -hmm. Christian church, people only want to hear messages from the gospel. They only want to read Christian writers, talk about Christian ideas. But the reality is, is we have a lot, you know, I'm speaking as a Christian, we have a lot to learn from Buddhists. We have a lot to learn from Muslims. We have a lot to learn from, from Jews and Hindus and, and Native American or shamanistic uh, traditions. So I think this is one of the things that all the religions are going to have to do in, in the years, decades to come, is to find out ways how to be faithful to your own tradition, but to really be open to wisdom wherever you can find it. And that that, that kind of cross-fertilization, I think, can help all of us to grow spiritually and hopefully to make for a better society as well. Yeah, nicely put. In fact, uh, as uh, you mentioned, I also grew up in, in Romania, which was uh, mainly a Christian Orthodox uh, country. And, and then I immigrated to, to Canada, which is, uh, you know, a part of, uh, of everyone from all over the world. Uh, and I had to adapt and open my mind to new points of view and new religion and new uh, to, to spirituality, pretty much. And it was quite interesting to, to see um, how much acceptance I have within me and I don't, I didn't judge. And it was quite refreshing for, for me to understand that I'm open to hear other points of view related to, you know, religion and spirituality. And that's very beautiful, you know, and, and for some people, that's not, it's, that's not easy for them to do. You know, we may have learned from our parents or from our culture to be, you know, suspicious of other cultures or afraid of other cultures. And so I think, you know, when, when we can learn how to be open, how to have an open heart, obviously you want to be discerning, 
but you should be discerning even in your own religion or tradition or culture because uh, you know there there are you know certainly plenty of christians who have gone off track you know and that's true in every religion so you know discernment is always important but if you have that basic understanding of discernment and of of wisdom of being able to to sort out what is healthy and what is not healthy then then you know to see the world the diversity of the world is a blessing to see the diversity of cultures, the diversity of languages, the diversity of, uh, you know, of, of traditions, of wisdom traditions and philosophies, all of that diversity makes us stronger. It's, I mean, it's just like in nature, you know, uh, what makes a forest healthy is diversity. What makes an ecosystem healthy is diversity. It's the same thing in the spiritual world. Spiritual diversity is a blessing not a curse. But again, this is a lesson that I think especially people who maybe are overly identified with their religious background, it, it doesn't always come intuitively. So it's a lesson that we have to learn collectively as a species, as we hope to grow into the future. Yes. And, and along the lines of uh, diversity, um, you are working on a mysticism series, including uh, Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and Sufism. Um, what is the approach to, to these seminars? What's the, what's the goal? Well, that is through an organization here in Atlanta. I'll give a shout out to them. Their name is Zeitgeist. And Zeitgeist is a, it's, it's a very informal community, but they describe themselves as a home for the spiritually independent. This really builds on this conversation you and I have been having about the distinction between religion and spirituality. And so this is a, a language that uh, a rabbi named Rami Shapiro developed. I think it's original with him. But this idea, you know, you, again, you hear this phrase, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, his idea, let's not, let's not be negative about religion. Let's just acknowledge that we're spiritually independent. So our spirituality maybe is not based on any one religious tradition, but is really based on learning from all the traditions. Now, this is not... Um, this is not, again, not a negation of different religions. In fact, my experience of the, the Zeitgeist people and, and other spiritually independent people is that they often are deeply appreciative of all the traditions and they want to learn from the different traditions. And so certainly the, the, the uh, executive director and the other uh, people on the leadership team of Zeitgeist very much feel that way. And so uh, they've gathered together, myself and several other uh, spiritual leaders, all here in the Atlanta area. I believe all the programming is going to be online, but it's all based here in Atlanta. And, um, and, and I know the, the people who are involved, and they're all just absolutely, you know, first-rate first rate people, very deeply immersed in their own tradition. But again, with that big heart that's very respectful and appreciative of other traditions. And so we're doing four Saturday seminars uh, mine is coming up in August. Then we have, I think, uh, the uh, Steve is doing the Hindu in September, and then Mitch is doing uh, the Jewish tradition in October, and then Kamal in November with the Muslim tradition. I may have that a little out of order, but um, but the idea is that uh, each on there's one Saturday, and so I'll have one Saturday where I will just be bringing people into the basic teachings of mystical Christianity. So, and again, it's not 
that there isn't other forms of mysticism. Of course there are, but my background is in mystical Christianity. So we'll be taking a deep dive into that tradition. But the people who sign up for this series, then next month, they will be exposed, you know, each month they'll be exposed to a different tradition. And so hopefully by the end of the series, what people will begin to recognize is how many, you know, how many themes and commonalities there are between the different mystical traditions, even while also celebrating how each one is unique in its own way. It's, it's, I, I like to compare it to a symphony, you know, or, or even a band. You know, some people play the guitar, some people play the bass, some people play the drums, some people play the keyboards. Each instrument is unique. It takes a different technique and a different kind of language to learn that, you know, playing the bass is different from playing the guitar. But the point is, is that you're all making music. You're all working with the same basic eight notes, the same melodies, the same composition. And so if we can bring them together, that's how we create harmony. That's how we create beautiful music. And I think that's really the philosophy that is at work in the Zeitgeist community. And of course, Zeitgeist is here in Atlanta, but there are, there are similar kind of movements all over the world, you know, of, of, of again, you know, kind of like I say, religion in the best sense of the word. Although, you know, the people in Zeitgeist probably wouldn't describe themselves as a religion because of their experience with, with traditions. They would just describe themselves as a community. That's fine. You know, it's still, it's a community where the people come together to support one another in our collective and individual spiritual lives. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And um, recently I uh, watched a documentary with uh, another uh, Christian spiritual leader, who used to take his um, children, he was sitting, uh, teaching at school and he will uh, select, I don't know, 20, 25 uh, children and he will take them to a mosque, mosque and he will have the Iman talking about their own religion and the Iman will have his 20, 25 children and then the Christian leader will talk about Christianity and kids will then interact with each other, will ask questions uh, and in the end they will become friends, they will, will merge and uh, we'll, you know, uh, have more inquiries about what's different between Christianity and Islam. And, and it was a very interesting initiative which um, built bridges. Yes, yes. Yes, I think that, that this is really what we need in society more than anything else, is that we need to, to, to celebrate our common ground, celebrate our commonality. And that's not that's not to say that we don't, you know, we don't acknowledge our differences, but we don't have to be afraid of our differences. You know, it's okay to do some things differently, to have different languages, different cultures, different traditions. But, the, but you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of like somebody who, you know, take, take racial or ethnic differences, you know, somebody who is from the African continent, somebody who's from the European continent, different skin color, maybe different eye color, different hair color, you know, all these differences that we, we have created racism over. And yet that is only 5%, maybe less of the makeup of, of what it means to be human. And that other 95 to 99% were exactly the same, the same DNA, the same organs, the same, the same nerve, neural system. And so this is what we need to do as religions, is that we need to learn to celebrate that 98% we have in common, and then we can acknowledge the 2% where we're different and learn about that, but we don't have to attack each other. We don't, you know, we don't have to be be hostile 
to one another just because we see things differently. Christians see Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, Jews and Muslims see Jesus as a prophet. That's a difference. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we have to be hostile to one another. And I think that's really the point where we have to get to. So. Yes. And I'd like to stay uh, go deeper, in fact, into your work. And um, you are getting ready for a four-week uh, workshop in September. It's called Wisdom of the Desert Mothers and Fathers. And I'd like to, uh, to quote from the, the description because I really liked it. Um, so I'm, I'm quoting right now. Often we see sometimes acerbic, the teachings of these spiritual saints, rebels, and oddballs speak to universal human relationships and spiritual struggles. They often prayed through the night, fasted frequently, owned little by way of material possessions, avoided company, abstained from sexual relationships, and in many cases did not participate in public worship. In other words, these saints did the opposite of what they, the clergy did. Um, they really understood the way to get closer to God. So, sorry, I, I closed the quote. I, I forgot to mention that. Um, so they understood the way to get closer to God and with their own divinity. So I have two, two questions. Um, can you share with us some of the names um, that you will talk about during the workshop? And second, do you think that nowadays there are similar God-infused saints that are not understood by their spiritual communities and seen as odd? Yeah, that, and and I didn't write that description. Somebody else wrote the description, but but I I agree with it that you know that the so so to answer the first part of your question, the Desert Mothers and Fathers, which is a series of um of Christian people who lived in the deserts of Egypt and Israel, Palestine, Syria, um, back in the second, third, fourth, maybe even beyond centuries. So early in the, in the Christian era. And um, so some of the names that people may have heard, there's uh, St. Uh, Anthony of the Desert, there's St. Mary of Egypt, there is, um, let's see, St. Macarius, Saint Moses the Black. There's a number of and, and a number of others who maybe aren't as well known. They're not as well known as say like Saint Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or any of, of those kinds of saints who came later. But collectively, the Desert Mothers and Fathers do have a reputation, and the reputation is that they were some of the earliest um, practitioners of what we would now call mysticism or contemplation. That these these were and they were also the um, they were also the, the the first monks and nuns in the Christian tradition. So so people who really gave their lives to their spiritual quest, and um, you know, and then eventually formed these communities that we eventually came to recognize as monasteries or as convents. And so um, so they're they're a fascinating kind of chapter in the history of Western spirituality. And, and that's not to say that we necessarily have to imitate them. I, I, for one, am not going to go out into the desert and live a celibate life. You know, that's, that's not my calling. But, um, but these, these people who did choose to live that way, oftentimes their, you know, their stories are just filled with wisdom. Wisdom about uh, virtues like hospitality and generosity and, and um, you know, single-mindedness towards the divine. Again, they were practitioners of deeply silent forms of meditation and prayer. So they, they have a lot to teach us. And, um, you know, and so this particular program is really just uh, 
an opportunity. It's being offered through a seminary, again, here in Atlanta, but it's offered online, so anybody can do it. But just this opportunity to, to learn from this literature, these writings of the Desert Mothers and Fathers from 16, 17, 1800 years ago, with an eye to what do their teachings have to say to us today? You know, what can I learn to help me on my journey to draw closer to God here in, you know, the 21st century? So, and have um, they left behind any writings or these records are of someone else's? Well, some of them did. There were a few of the, the desert uh, figures who, who were writers, who were preachers, and we have their sermons, that kind of thing. But then there were also people who gathered their sayings. In fact, you'll, you'll find books with the titles, like the sayings of the desert mothers and fathers. And so these were probably edited collections where it was originally passed down orally, you know, from, from teacher to student, from teacher to student. And then somebody would eventually gather them together and, and publish these collections of these stories. So, so it's a combination of oral tradition and then in a few instances of individuals who were themselves writers. Uh, there was one figure who lived in the desert, his name was Evagrius. And Evagrius was probably, again, I think one of the more important figures uh, really, his writing is very, I mean, he, he almost sounds like a Buddhist monk, you know, very deeply immersed in meditation and in silence in his teachings. Another one was a man named John Cashin. And, um, and Cashin, again, his teachings very much influenced the, in later centuries, the, the Cloud of Unknowing, which was a medieval contemplative teaching, and even down to the Centering Prayer Movement here in the 21st century, 20th and 21st centuries. So, you know, so we had these teachers from centuries ago left their writings that have made a difference over the, over the centuries. And now to the second part of the, the question, if do you think that nowadays there are similar people who are seen awed by any yeah. religious structure? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, maybe there are still people living in the desert. I, I don't know off the top of my head. But, um, you know, this, this idea of oddness or weirdness, I, I think it's something that is worth looking at, that sometimes, you know, spirituality is very, is very interior, you know, this sense of where do you find God, you know, and, and what the mystics have always said is you find God in your heart. You know, and Jesus taught that. He said, when you pray, close the door and go into the inner room. Well, he was speaking about the inner room in your body. So the inner room is the heart. Close the door of your eyes, close the door of your ears, the door of your mouth, and then sink within your heart, sink within that silent place deep within you. And there you can encounter the living presence of the divine. There you can experience union with God. And so, so this is a gift that is given to every one of us. You don't have to be holy or a saint or a priest or a bishop, a nun. Every human being has access to that divine presence in your own heart. But what that means, of course, is just like every one of us has unique DNA. Every one of us has a unique um, relationship with the divine, a relationship with, with, with God, with the spirit. Whatever language you want to use, all the language is inadequate because God is bigger than our human language. So, um, so th the reality is, is your encounter with the divine in your heart is going to look different from mine and different from my wife's and different from anyone who's listening to this conversation.
and on and on and on. And so because of that diversity, that interior diversity, it only stands to reason that what might give me meaning might strike you as pretty odd, you know, or pretty weird. And um, so that's not meant to be a pejorative. It's not meant to be judgment. It's really meant to be kind of a celebration. And, um, you know, and again, back to the desert mothers and fathers, one of the, the things that I will talk about in this series is humor. You know, some of their stories are funny. And so, um, you know, this, we sometimes lose sight of this. Sometimes spiritual people take things too seriously. We get too caught up, you know, <clears throat> on the need for healing, the need for transformation. If you want to use traditional religious language, the need for repentance, for turning away from sin, you know, that we can get kind of heavy with our spirituality. And, and what I would like to say is that that's only part of the spiritual journey. Yes, there, it's important that we, we experience healing. It's important that the parts of ourselves that are broken or wounded get healed. But there's also room for delight and for joy and for laughter and for play and for a sense of humor. All of that is part of the part of the spiritual landscape as well. And so, you know, so when we start talking about that, we hear these, these mystics who are odd or who were weird, we're really talking about that, that sometimes there's a sense of humor and a sense of delight and even a sense of playfulness in, in, in the spiritual world. Um, there was, um, there was a saint who lived, I believe he was in Italy, uh, either Spain or Italy, uh, back in the 16th century. His name was St. Philip Neri. And, and the story is, is that he just, he loved humor. He loved jokes. He was always saying funny things and helping people to laugh. And that, you know, he saw himself as a fool for Christ's sake. I think you could say the same thing about St. Francis of Assisi. And there have been others over the centuries who have this kind of idea that foolishness can actually lead us into holiness. I, th I think that's a beautiful teaching and one that I wish more spiritually minded people would embrace in our day and age. So, the, so yes, the oddness is definitely still part of the spiritual landscape for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. If we open our hearts to that, God wants to play with us. God wants to be in, in delight with us and maybe even sometimes tell a joke with us. Yes, I mean, God wants to play with us, but also God wants us to be playful. <clears throat> yes. So with indeed. each other, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's that's beautiful. And uh, we all know that uh, you know mystical literature is full of symbolism and, and layers upon layers of uh, um, teachings and and uh, wisdom. Um, do you think that uh, nowadays um, the churchgoers uh, receive um, the best? explanation from the, the gospel's wisdom, or there's still something which is being hidden from, from them? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, it obviously, it would vary from church to church. Um, you know, this idea of what is being hidden, you know, I use the phrase hidden in plain sight, that I think that the teachings are all right there in the Bible. They're all right there in the lives of the saints and the mystics. But I think that, that again, kind of the institutional side of Christianity, the religious side of Christianity, has often ignored those teachings. I don't think it's so much a conspiracy to hide them as just over the generations they've been forgotten. 
And I think it's because the institution tends to tends to be focused on more mundane elements, you know, raising children, baptizing children, uh, confirming adolescents, uh, helping young people to get married, counseling people during times of illness or times of suffering, burying the dead, you know, all these kind of external functions that is an important part of religion. You know, I, I had a daughter die seven years ago, and I can tell you being involved in a church was very helpful when she was sick, when she was dying, after she died, having her funeral, you know, having a relationship with the priest was very, very helpful during that whole process. And so, you know, so I really can see what's, what's good about religion, you know, but, um, but the problem is, and your question alludes to this, is that because religion has become so fixated on those external elements that it's really lost sight of the interior. And I think, you know, I, I come out of the Catholic tradition, but I think you could say the same thing with the Orthodox tradition, that there historically, the monks and the nuns, the people in the convents and the monasteries, it was their job to preserve the interior. And then the rest of us, the lay people or the, the parish priests, we just, our job was just to live our lives, you know, and to, you know, to, to have families and to make a living and to raise our children, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like we left the spiritual work to the professionals. I don't think that was Jesus's intention. I don't think that was ever the Holy Spirit's intention. And I think we're fortunate now to live in a time uh, when more and more Christians have come to recognize, no, I, I want, you know, I want what the monks have. I want what the Buddhists have. I want what the Sufis have. That being a Christian means more than just going to church and putting money in the collection plate, you know, and living a good and moral life. I mean, that, all of those things may be important, but it means so much more than that. It, it means doing that interior work, uh, taking on a spiritual practice, learning to meditate, learning to contemplate, discovering that divine presence within us that, so that our lives can be infused with joy. You know, uh, the Bible talks about there are nine, I believe it's nine fruits of the spirit. And the first one, of course, is love, which makes perfect sense because God is love. But the second one is joy. And it, and it saddens me how many religious people there doesn't seem to be any joy in their religious practice. It's almost like a burden that they have to just kind of, kind of endure. I don't think that's what, what Jesus or, or God ever meant, that, that this was meant to be a source of happiness, a source of meaning, a source of purpose, a source of delight, that we bring delight to one another in our spiritual lives. You know, you think about statues of the Buddha or, or, you know, little figurines that you put on your desk and the Buddha is laughing, he's smiling. And I think that is, that's the spiritual life in a nutshell, that enlightenment or, or holiness bring us joy. And so we have to, um, we have to reclaim that. So you so you say, you know, are people getting that, you know, are they getting the, the mystical teachings not always, but are they even getting the joyful teachings? You know, let's start there. And I wish more and more churches would focus on the joy. And I think if they focused on the joy, the mysticism would follow because I think they're all connected. Yeah. But there are, you know, to end on a positive note, there are, I, just in my lifetime, I have seen more and more churches, you know, and I'm speaking about individual congregations, but also, you know, on the institutional level, more and more churches are taking the spiritual life seriously. 
And so I, I do think there is a movement in that direction. Now, at the same time, you know, certainly in, in, in Europe and in North America and in, and in other parts of the world, we see the institutional side of Christianity contracting, you know, especially young people, more and more young people are just, you know, they're done. They just are not interested in, in an institution that only seems to be about protecting the institution. And so I, I, I don't know what the future of Christianity as a religion holds, but I do believe there was a theologian named Karl Rahner who famously said the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist. And I, I believe that with my whole heart. And I believe that the future of Christianity, whether we're talking about religious Christianity or simply Christian spirituality, but either way, the future will be deeply mystical because I think that's where the spirit is leading us. Yeah, I agree with you, Carl. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And staying uh, on the Bible, on the subject of the Bible, you know, uh, we know what the Bible says, God gave man dominion over land, water, and the sky. Um, is the modern world misinterpreting this uh, ancient uh, statement and teaching? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and the, you know, let's go back to that word dominion, is that we tend to think of it in terms of domination, like control. But, you know, it comes from the, um, it comes from the same Latin root. Think of the word domestic. So it's the same word that we get the word house from, you know, domus, D-O-M-U-S, the house. Um, the, you know, you also see it in terms of lordship, you know, the word lord. And we think, you know, again, a lord is somebody who, who has power or who has control. But originally, the, the etymology of the word Lord is related to the word loaf, like a loaf of bread. The Lord was the provider, was the person who was responsible for making sure that everybody was fed, everybody was cared for. The Dominus, the Lord, is the person who is in charge of making sure everybody in the household is cared for, is fed, is nurtured. And we've lost that sense. That's the meaning that scripture means when it talks about humanity being given dominion, being given lordship. We are asked to, to protect, to nurture, to steward, to, um, to care for nature. And we've lost that. And that is much to our shame and really very much at the root of the environmental crisis that we find ourselves in. And I think if there's any hope for restoring a healthier relationship with, with the environment. One of the things that we have to do, and this isn't just a Christian problem, this is a species-wide problem, yes, yeah. but humans need to be thinking about our relationship to the environment, not in terms of power and domination, but in terms of service, in terms of, of support, of care. You know, how do we care for nature? How do we care for natural resources? And, you know, and again, to think about it from a human perspective, care for them so they'll still be here seven generations from now, so that our great, 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 great grandchildren will have a beautiful world to go to. Uh, my wife and I were walking in our neighborhood last night, and we see this beautiful old tree that had been cut down. And so, of course, there, there are the logs in, in the front yard, and you know, I know they'll have somebody come and, and collect the wood. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, you know, we've cut down so many of these old trees, these old growth forests. You know, will our grandchildren ever see huge trees? You know, and it, it breaks my heart to think that they might not. And so, um, you know, so this is something I think we all have to be taking, taking very, very seriously is, is how do we preserve 
the environment, not just for today, but for a hundred years from now or 500 or a thousand years from now. Yes. That's mm-hmm. what I think dominion is all about. So, yeah. And to extrapolate, yeah. And to extrapolate the concept of uh, lordship, uh, I heard something very interesting um, like two or three weeks ago, uh, taking into the, the financial realm where they said in the past, the lordship used to care about their, uh, let's say, servants or people working their land because they knew that they need their hands to, uh, you know, work the land, get the, the crops back uh, safe into the, the barns. But nowadays, our lordships, which are the governments, they don't care about us they, because there are so many. They said, it's okay, we can replace them with more guys. They are lining up to, to work for us. So even that concept of lordship has been eroded over the over centuries. In, in terms of how we relate just among human beings, yes. let alone with the environment at large. Exactly, the corporation. You know, the idea that you go and work for a business, you know, it used to be if you worked for a business, you know, you would know the business owner and the business owner would know you and know your family. And so there would be, there would be a bond there. Now it's just your own number, you know, in a computer. And if the business gets sold, you, you, you can be laid off tomorrow. You know, you can just lose your job and nobody cares. You know, it's just a, a security officer shows you to the front door and that's the end of it. And so it's, um, you know, it's a very, very different world than it was, again, even 100 years ago. And so, um, you know, it's, um, it's something that I think we all have to take into consideration. And anybody who is in a position where they hire other employees, you know, that's something I think from a moral perspective, from a spiritual perspective that we all have to think about. You know, what does it mean to, to help this person and their family to live a good life? And that, you know, that this business isn't just something for me to make money. I mean, uh, you know, obviously part of business is making a profit. I'm not yes. saying that's wrong, but it has to be so much more than that. And that's what I think we've lost sight of. We've lost sight of those intangible blessings and everything has become focused on the bottom line. And that's, that's really unfortunate. And I, I would hope that um, as a society, we're really rethinking some of those priorities because, um, you know, you, again, you can make all the money in the world. As Jesus talked about, you made all the money in the world and then you lose your life. What do you have to show for it? You know, you die, you die miserable and unlo- alone. That's, that's tragic. But if you're, you know, if you're, even if you're successful in your business, but you're then built on relationships, built on caring and compassion and, and giving back to society and making a difference, then that's, that's a much better path to be on. Yes, and it was recently in the news that the Amazon drivers are being fired by an application uh, which monitors uh, their daily um, way of driving, their uh, efficacy, uh, efficiency, and in the end, if they don't meet their quota, they can be fired by an application. That was very interesting to read about. Yeah, so it's (laughs) like, yeah, nobody even does the dirty work anymore. Exactly. So, yeah. But, um, you know. Based on your um, you know, knowledge, you are in this field uh, much deeper than, than me. Um, what do you think is the acceptance of the Nakamadi and the Dead Sea Scrolls material uh, by the um, you know, church and the religious institutions? Well, you know, it's, um, I, I, again, that's not my area of expertise. So I can only just offer a few thoughts. The, um, 
the Gospel of Thomas has become very um, popular in the circles I move in, in the contemplative circles, again, because the focus there is on Jesus's teachings, his wisdom sayings. And so I know a number of people who work with it very closely. I've read it, of course, but, um, but I personally don't work with it because my focus is more on the later mystics. But, um, but I think it's certainly a valuable text. And I think it's something that, you know, is very, uh, is worthy for people people to study and to do research on, you know, and then there, you mentioned, you know, like the entire body of, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Nag Hammadi library. There's, you know, th these are entire libraries of texts and like anything else, I'm sure some are more valuable than others. You know, in the local, in the local church, oftentimes they tend to stick with what is tried and true. Mm -hmm. So there tends to be a focus on the canonical writings, the, what, what we think of as the Bible. Um, but I don't think there has to be a conflict between the Bible and some of these other texts. I think that, you know, it's like, it's just like reading, you know, Julian of Norwich or Meister Eckhart, you know, the great mystics. Um, you know, there may be some things in there that are very helpful and other things that aren't so helpful. The same thing with some of these ancient scrolls. Some of them are very helpful, some of them maybe not so helpful. Um, but, but, you know, because religion as an institution does tend tend to be conservative, not always, but tends to be conservative. Oftentimes you find that the people who are really doing this kind of work, this kind of research, operate outside of the institutional church or in, in an academic setting. Obviously there's a lot of research that's going on as well. But, um, but yeah, it's just not my personal area of expertise. So it's hard for me to comment much beyond those general kind of thoughts. I understand. Um, now going to your uh, latest uh, book, A Mystical uh, Heart, you started the quote from a poet William Blake, to see the world in a grain of sand, a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So what do you think we need to change as human beings in order for our perception to, to see the world in a grain of sand? That's a great, great question. And I don't know that I can give it justice in just a few minutes but I'll try. Um, first of all, I would argue that when you, um, when you really get to know the mystics, this is a message that the mystics are offering us over and over and over and over again, that you can find God, you can find the spirit everywhere, that you can find God in your, you know, I've already talked about in your own heart, you can find God in loved ones, you can find God in, in your environment, you can find God in the heavens above, um, in the earth, in the soil, in a baby, in a flower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The question is, is learning to recognize what is already there. We don't have to make God be there. God is already there and has been there all along. What we have to do is learn how to see. And so, you know, I begin my book by suggesting that the spiritual life begins with learning to see from a new perspective. And I use, you know, kind of like this little joke. I, I talk about the figure eight, which if you turn it on its side, it becomes the eternity symbol. It's the exact same, it's the exact same symbol, just upright. It's the number eight on its side. It represents eternity. So, it's, you know, looking at it from a different perspective, you see something totally different. And so the idea of how do we see God in a grain of sand or in a flower? Um, and what I would argue is that the ingredient is, is, is that love or that joy, 
that that learning to see things through the eyes of love or through the eyes of joy. It's 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 almost like we learn then to recognize the love and the joy that's already there. Now you might say, but but like what if like what if somebody's dying, you know, or somebody is suffering, or there's a tragedy, you know, a crime or something terrible. Is God present there? Well, the first thing I would say is I don't believe God causes suffering, but I do believe God is in solidarity with those who suffer. So even when there's something terrible happening, God is present. God is present because God loves us and God loves the person who is suffering and is there wanting to bring comfort and wanting to bring succor to those who suffer. And so learning to see that, and sometimes what that might mean is God is saying to us, how can you help? How can you help this person to, to find comfort or to find an alleviation to their suffering? God actually uses our hands, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to bring God's work into the world. So all of this is, is just, is all tied in together, but it's really, you know, it's really learning to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our, our ears, listen, see, feel, think, intuit that sense of love, that sense of joy, that sense of compassion and caring, which I, I truly believe is everywhere. And I think the more you read the mystics and the more you study them, the more you begin to notice it for yourself. Yes, indeed. And if I may ask uh, also, when we start realizing uh, or seeing the God within the other person, that will also change our perception and will make us better. Yeah. Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you see the divine in someone else, well, first of all, it becomes impossible to hate them. You know, if it's somebody you're in conflict with, then you better figure out a way to resolve the conflict. You know, uh, it, it would put an end to war. You know, it would put an end to violence if we really could learn. I mean, war is built on dehumanizing the enemy, you know. And so, um, so we, we have to find a way to rehumanize the people that we see as different from ourselves. I mean, the racism, for example, is a terrible example, but we know racism is a problem in America and many other places around the world. Racism is built on the idea of seeing the person whose skin color is different from you as somehow inferior than you, you know, and, and it's, um, it has to stop. And it, and, it, and it has to stop, obviously, on a social level, but also each person has to, has to look in their own heart and say, you know, how do I dehumanize the other person? And how can I, I replace that with a willingness to listen and a willingness to get to know the other person and to hear their stories and to meet them eye to eye, heart to heart, face to face as fellow human beings? It's absolutely essential work. It's not optional. It's absolutely essential in this day and age. Yeah, and in my opinion, I think it's an artificial um, conflict and every time it dies down, something else will spark uh, the conflict uh, once again because it's something which will uh, you know, keep us busy and uh, deflect our attention from what's essential. And that's pretty much what we've been discussing, going internal, inside us, connecting with divinity. And um, at least, again, that's my, my impression of uh, you know, well, and, what's going on. And I will, I will respond by saying that to say it's artificial is easy to do for those of us who have social privilege. There are people who, in, in America, people who are not of European ancestry, people of color, indigenous people, uh, people from African descent, 
they, it's it's not it's not just make believe for them. It's real. Uh, re- discrimination is real. Racism is real. That that there are economic. Uh, systems in place, systems of injustice that that hold people back because of the color of their skin or because of their their nation of origin, and those systems have to be dismantled. But where where you know I think you and I probably are in broad agreement is that the systems will never be dismantled if there isn't a conversion of heart, yes. and that conversion mm-hmm. of heart has got to come first. And so it's something that we all have to work on very seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay. One last question. We have to uh, to close the the interview. Uh, if you have the the chance, the opportunity to visit the the Vatican Library, what item or book would you be interested to to see with your own eyes? Oh well, you know, I don't know what's in the Vatican Library, so you know that's a great question. Um, you know, I would love. Certainly, I would love to see some of the writings of the mystics in their own hand. And, um, and I don't know what's in the library, but, but for example, if you go to Spain, in Avila, Spain, they have all of the writings of Teresa of Avila in her own hand. And I just think to be, to be able to be exposed to those, you know, it's, I mean, it's like a relic, you know, it's like a saint's relic, that here is this woman who had these incredible mystical experiences, these incredible encounters with the divine presence, and then wrote this sublime literature to teach others how to have that same encounter in their own hearts. It would just be a privilege to be, you know, to be in the presence of that great literature. Um, I'm sure there is some amazing material, not only in the Vatican, but in, in other libraries around the world, you know, the British library, um, you know, the libraries in Paris or in other other. Uh, major major uh, cities or universities that uh, could really bring us joy or bring us a sense of purpose. But to be to be clear, I think we've already got everything we need. We've got the just the wisdom teachings of Jesus: love your enemies, forgive people seven times seventy times, uh, let the light shine into your eyes so that your your body is filled with light. I mean, Jesus is talking about enlightenment there. You know, he's basically saying, you know, do what the Buddha did. You know, allow your your eyes to fill your entire body with light. The teachings are already there. Everything we need to be filled with joy, to be filled with happiness, to be filled with purpose, and to be of true service to one another has already been given to us. But again, it's hidden in plain sight. What we need to do is we need to apply those teachings to actually bring them into our own hearts and to allow them to transform us from the inside out. And then we can go to the Vatican and see what else is there. But, um, but we've, already got, we've already got so many treasures. I mean, even just right there, you know, the wisdom of the world. It's, it's not the Vatican Library, but I can tell you everything you need to live a happy life is in, is in these books right here. And so, um, so now our job is to do it. To live that happy life. God, thank you very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to and honor to to have you on uh, my my podcast today. Well, it's been a joy uh, speaking with you. Thank you very much. And uh, for my viewers, thank you for watching. Uh, like it, share it, uh, support me on uh, Patreon.com/slash/ClaudiaMorgan. Get a free copy of my book uh, when you visit my website. And until next time, love and gratitude. <laughs>